Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, December 5th, 2016, the Fidel Castro and Lying Liars edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics, the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Joined as usual by my regular co-host, Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristalia? I'm doing very well, thank you, Adam. How are you? Slightly concerned by the smell of smoke drifting up from elsewhere in the building, but hopefully the size of that emergency will not disrupt the recording. Uh, no Scott this week, he's in the belly of the beast over in Georgia, uh, that's in the American Deep South, not in the Caucasus, uh, which is the more right of center state these days, I'm not too sure. But we have an able replacement for him in the form of previous guest uh, and friend of the podcast, Marco Vieira, a senior lecturer in international relations. How are you doing, Marco? I'm very well, thank you. Very happy to be here. Our two topics today. First, Fidel Castro, the communist revolutionary turned ruler for life who dominated Cuban politics for 47 years, dies at 90 years of age. How should the complicated epic of his political career be remembered? Second, as the United States prepares for the inauguration of Donald Trump as its president and tweeter-in-chief, how should the media report on the statements of a political leader who regularly tells barefaced lies? On November 25th, Fidel Castro died at the age of 90. He had stepped aside from official political leadership a decade ago in favor of his brother Raul, but before that served for nearly half a century, first as prime minister and then as president of Cuba, having led the revolutionary overthrow of the government there in 1959. In that time, he saw out the terms of 10 US presidents and established himself as one of the most significant figures in the modern history of the Americas. To his supporters, Castro was a national hero who overturned a brutal dictatorship, democratized the availability of health care, housing, and education in the country, and fought to drive out Yankee imperialism, not just from Cuba, but all Latin America. To his critics, he was a self-regarding authoritarian who used the language of popular revolution to justify his own dictatorial rule through repression via the imprisonment or exile of his enemies, and made his country a Soviet-dependent chess piece in the Cold War. His greatest moment of global significance came in the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, when the superpowers almost went to nuclear war over Soviet efforts to install missiles on the island. Through almost all his rule, Cuba was subjected to an economic embargo by the United States, which made it difficult to tell how much of the island's dependence on Soviet subsidy and after the Cold War economic struggle was the product of communist policy and how much resulted from outside vindictiveness. They shut down the, the free press, they shut down opposition, they mm. arrested opposition uh, uh, political figures, but uh, there was no ostensive uh, military presence in the country in a way to contain any sort of uh, 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 no, a boiling uh, pot of, uh, of mm. opposition that was just under the surface. Right, but, you, but, you, but I mean, you're not going to tell me, are you, that if there had been... Uh, if there had been the same freedoms for multi-party democracy and freedom of expression and political contest in Cuba as there are in, say, the United Kingdom or the United States, you're not going to tell me that Fidel Castro would have won those elections for 47 years to remain in charge. The apparatus that he built, the one-party state with himself at the top of it, was the only way you can possibly stay in charge of a country for that long. Uh, I, I think you are right, but on the other hand, if he had allowed the kind of instruments of uh, building up a different type of consensus in society along the line of what could have been the Washington consensus that the trickle down economics and and and, that, and 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 move the country in a completely different direction what the situation would have been in terms of uh, you know levels of education and, and health mm. uh, public health so on and so forth you might be right that the repression helped him to stay in power and a multi-party liberal system would, but in the end of the day, the situation on the ground would not have been any better than it is today. In terms, at least not in terms of political freedoms, but mm -hmm. at least in terms of uh, no uh, uh, levels of uh, uh, um, no education, well, access like to public health system. This kind, of. but yeah. this is a compromise. The question is, what is the actual priority here from the perspective of uh, the government? Yeah, no, is uh, the, the freedoms and the, 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 that we do have in, in liberal democracies? Because I mean, if you compare the United States with Cuba, now uh, literacy or, 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 or child mortality, and they're way ahead of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't, but cannot uh, choose the, the political leaders. Mm. So, so yeah. Part of checking, I mean, part of understanding legacy is what is, 
what happens going forward as well. So one of the questions I have is what what happens now? I mean, there's going to be a reasonably, there's a reasonably smooth transition that's been in place for a long time, but what will Cuba look like in the next five years? Very good question. His brother is still Raul, he's yeah. pretty old himself. Uh, I think uh, as most cases with this type of regimes, they have to find someone in the inner circle to to replace him. I think there's some choices there available, uh, but given the, the amount of public support that seems that regime still sustains, mm. Uh, I don't foresee uh, you know, change, at least in the the next five to ten years, depending on the economic situation. Obviously, I think one key challenge for Venezuela, or for Cuba, is uh, how the situation will turn out in Venezuela, which is the main sponsor of the Cuban regime. It still is in terms of the free provision of oil and. Uh, cheap oil, so on so but forth. they're struggling to provide for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they are quite. No, this is one big, big question mark for, for for the Cuban regime, and that's another reason why they are so uh, uh, keen to open up the economy and to allow uh, for investment because they know that uh, they cannot rely on Venezuelan oil any longer. So mm. I think the economic question here is more important than actually in terms of how how much the, the, the regime will be able to to stay in power. Mm. Cristala, you're a student of uh, societies that have had civil discord that is elevated to the level of conflict, and you know one side or other wins that, and often ugly things follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, those kinds of regimes would justify a lot of the repression and the violence, the disappearances and the deaths that occur by saying, "Well." We've created a certain kind of political order. Order is better than not order. And our specific political order is delivering goods that are a price worth paying. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, that it is a price worth paying to have uh, the repression in exchange for these uh, these kinds of benefits. How would you look at someone like Fidel Castro who, you know, pretty successfully provided, I guess, peace and stability of a kind uh, in Cuba, but did it through a lot of the mechanisms that in your study of, uh, you know, post-conflict situations have been shown to produce huge amounts of lasting suffering and grievance in society. I think this is why I asked the question to Marco, because what often happens is that after, after the death of a leader who has held so much space for so long, the, f- the fractures begin. Um, and it's in this period, the first kind of five to seven years, where you start seeing these kind of erosions um, and suppressed uh, suppressed differences and this, this emergence of suppressed narratives as well. And that's what I wonder about. So the economic question is really important, absolutely. But the question of, I think there's a tipping point in these kind of uh, contexts where in part it's about the number of people that support that gain enough be- that have enough benefit in the system for enough time afterwards to continue supporting a transition so in this transition period there needs to be the continuation of this kind of service provision uh in order not to further destabilize right and so what i wonder about is is whether the extent to which that can happen and what kind of things we'll see emerging that might cause deeper cracks? Because it, it's one thing that he to to observe that he has tremendous internal support, but it's another thing to start hearing the voices of dissenters in opportunities like these start kind of gathering momentum, mm-hmm. and that's where you see the the repressive machinery for whatever benefit starts starts kind of being questioned and and possibly falling apart mm. and if the, if, the, if the sheer force of his personality personal charisma yeah. and his accumulated yeah. credibility yeah. as the person who brought about the revolution is dissipated yeah. how much of the population's uh, relative passivity or uh, superficial satisfaction was the result of him being there himself and how much of it was a kind of contentment with the regime and the system of government in itself in a way that can outlast him? Well, can the system of government outlast him? How, to what extent can the system of government outlast him? And it's about 
to what extent the institutions sustain themselves without that charismatic mm. force, right? And whether some people within that kind of um, uh, genealogy that he's created will uh, look for different routes. Mm. We'll find this an opportunity to, to, to start doing things a little bit differently. And if they do, will they have public support? And if they don't have public support, what happens mm. then? Yeah, one interesting thing that he said uh, before he died was that he never thought he would live that long. Mm. And you have to remember also that he was uh, not involved in politics in Cuba for at least the last 10 years. Mm. She was a kind of this symbolic figure that was mm. not even you know, showing up. You know, we have to uh, use an, you know, this image of Fidel mm -hmm. with, uh, with uh, the military fatigue. And, yeah. um, it, you know, he was just at home with his Adidas, yeah. uh, you know, uh, 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 sports uh, uh, outfit. Shell, shell suit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Track suit, if, yeah, you, uh, yeah. if you're Australian. So, and then uh, uh, I think this is, uh, I mean, a question of uh, whether he's going to, the system will outlive him has already been answered. Mm. The question now is the, the system outlive his brother, mm. uh, Raul, mm. who has established himself as, as, as the, the leader of Cuba, the Cuba after Fidel. Mm. Fidel, I think he has what is a uh, uh, pantheon of uh, you know, uh, you know uh, someone who was iconic figure that uh, even though he was still physically alive, people read, oh, he has his time already has passed, mm. Mm. and I think it was kind of beyond that point uh, already in terms of. Uh, but there is a clearly a question now after Raúl, who is old himself, mm. Mm. what's going to happen uh, to Cuba if he be able to to keep the regime going for for another you know, five to ten years? It's, a, mm. it's an open question, absolutely. There's a real dilemma in the, that you see in the human rights community and various parts of the human rights community since his passing, which is that, you know, we talk about atrocities and we talk about repression, but, but we also support revolutionary left-wing um, movements and Cuba especially. And so there's this, you see this tension um, that Adam kind of alluded to earlier. How do you deal with how mm -hmm. do you deal with the violations? How do you talk about the violations? Mm. In what context do you talk about them? Because there's not, I mean, if you're left-wing, there's also a, a, an unclear frame about that. Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, it would be, yeah, I'd like to go on that for a minute if, yeah. I, if I can, that you know, as a sometime participant in intra-left-wing debates in Britain, I like to think of myself as left of centre, but know I discover regularly not as far left of center as, uh, uh, as some of those who I find myself in dialogue with um, he occupies this uh, space where he clearly represents something a lot of which Marco has alluded to before like a, a figure of resistance against uh, neoliberalism American imperialism a variety of systemic political and economic forces that the left thinks need to be resisted and therefore because he was able to do that with much more success than anybody else he, he's a heroic figure at the same time uh, he clearly made a priority of maintaining himself in power over a very long period of time he did that at the cost of shutting down political freedom as we would tend to understand it at least here and, and in the United States there were a variety of other things he did you know, one of the things, for example, that's been much discussed is his attitude towards homosexuality, characterized as a counter-revolutionary tendency, effectively, and uh, you know, thousands of, of people were sent to work prison camps simply for, for, being, for being gay. And I think I'm, I'm more or less happy to go down the road of saying big historical figures contain multitudes and we need to try and put that in perspective. So someone who goes that you know, Fidel Castro has horns on his head because he did this would be simple-minded. But I think one, the, the way in which some on the left, not anyone in this room, but some on the left have reacted to Fidel Castro's death is what gives the left a bad name, in my view, uh, in that when someone like Ronald Reagan dies or Margaret Thatcher dies or some complicated figure of the right who did a lot of stuff, then they will be uh, they will be relentlessly attacked as an unforgivable monster because of the bad things as they are read from the left that they did. But when someone who has done things which 
vastly outstrip anything that at least those figures did within their own countries, then there's a sudden imperative to not just say, let's look at the big picture, but to actively marginalize and almost want to tell people to shut up and stop uh, stop uh, harping on the negative side, even if that negative side included uh, prison camps and uh, one-party states, uh, etc. So I suppose... I would what 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 I what I would say is maybe this is a sort of teachable moment for where this uh, uh, reflective centrist tendency that I'm always trying to cultivate but never quite managing to find uh, find uh, reflected back at me by society can come about where we go okay if this is how we want to view Fidel Castro as a big figure with good as well as bad maybe that requires a degree of reciprocity in how other complicated figures on the other side of the system of the political spectrum are viewed and I would say exactly the same thing if I was in a room full of a bunch of people who you know whose immediate instinct was to say that Fidel Castro was an unforgivable monster who needs to be burned in effigy it's uh you know it's too easy to look past the very real monstrous evils that Fidel Castro did simply uh, fueled by political motive if one, is, uh, if one is not careful, I think. From a different context, um, I think you saw some of that, we saw some of that debate actually in South Africa with Nelson Mandela and his own legacy and this kind of struggle between the freedom fighter slash terrorist slash beloved leader who left his own legacy and the 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 leadership kind of far outlived him as a figure as well mm-hmm. but there was also this struggle within South Africa to understand the evils of all parties though one side was in you know the apartheid regime is is non-comparative non-comparative, non-comparable, non-compassmentous. But there was this kind of discussion, how do, you, how do you talk about this spectrum along the right and the left and these big figures, de Klerk, Mandela, um, and how do you represent them as historical figures mm-hmm. without... Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned South Africa because uh, as Adam uh, was talking, I was thinking about... The question of uh, how you actually measure mm. how bad someone was to his own people in the case of Castro. Uh, and if you think in, in global terms, you, know, you talk about someone who fought alongside the Angolan resistance mm-hmm. to fight precisely mm-hmm. the white supremacist uh, army in, in South Africa, mm-hmm. who helped to defeat the South African government, who helped to liberate mm-hmm. the, the South African people from, from apartheid was seen as, if you go to Southern Africa, Castro is a, yep. um, is a hero. Hero, right? yeah. Uh, and I was a close friend to Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. In the time that ANC was labeled a terrorist organization by this country and by the United States. Mm-hmm. So he has done a lot of bad, you know, but he has done a lot of good as well. I mean, to, in terms of liberating people, he was oppressing people at home, but mm-hmm. also helping to liberate people in Africa and other parts of the world as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I was thinking recently about what happened in Brazil a few years ago when uh, Brazil established uh, uh, um, an agreement with the Cuban government. They would send over to Brazil uh, Cuban doctors to look at mm-hmm. uh, you know, some poor states in Northeast and North. And what's incredible, the, the, the quality of the doctors in mean, preventive basic medicine and how they uh, uh, have been used as, as a model for other parts of, uh, of Latin America, how, how far they have gone now on public health. So it's, it's difficult to establish, or, or, or I don't think it's useful really to, to pass judgment in terms of, okay, that's horrible that they had actually done uh, such things with, uh, with, uh, you know, with, with gays, and this is uh, uh, really uh, in the prison camps and all this stuff. But on the other hand, you had a similar, or way worse uh, uh, regime in, in, in Latin America, what's uh, Augusto Pinochet, no, which has been backed mm. up by mm-hmm. uh, by the US with in, in one uh, sweep no killed thirty thousand people yeah. and uh, I mean and the US doesn't seem to have had problems with dictators in Latin America but it's mm. our dictators mm. you know, our mm-hmm. son of a bitch is like Eisenhower mm-hmm. said mm-hmm. You know? uh, and, and and I think it's not a useful question so mm. like if you think about Fidel Castro as what he has done in terms of uh, 
not only as a Cuban figure or a Cuban leader, mm. but also as a Latin American and, 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 and global revolutionary, someone who has brought change, positive change, in quite a few parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe the final note to, to leave this on, I would just say then, is that my instinct in politics in general is not to do heroes, right? But that, that, that characterizing people in that terminology uh, invites the accusation, often accurate, that one is essentially seeking to edit I hope I the negative I side. I haven't come across as uh, I, I, him a, I, I, a hero I, out of him, but... I, I, I don't <laughs> think There so. are heroes, though. Yeah. It's just that alongside this heroism is a complex yeah. story that we Absolutely. often don't tell yeah. or can't tell. Hmm. I think it's just that like I, if I was asked to do a review of Augusto Pinochet, then I would be pretty scathing about his record on human rights and what he did domestically. And I can reconcile that very easily with being similarly scathing about Fidel Castro's, even while holding in my mind at the same time the thought that maybe they couldn't have done some of the things that people might characterize as good without that being the price worth paying. And there's a danger of simply working out who someone's enemies were and deciding that because their enemies were enemies that merited fighting, the things that they did need to be erased in some sense from our, from our memory or, or, or minimized. Uh, and that you just uh, reflexively, uh, you, you, you mirror the things that are objectionable in those on the other side of the argument from you in terms of editing out the downside and over-lionizing complex historical figures simply because you're annoyed or irritated by the hypocrisy of who you perceive the other side to be so you end up embodying that hypocrisy just on the other side I guess uh, not everyone has the luxury of being a sort of desiccated uh, rational observer but at least at least here I think we, we, we get that luxury <laughs> Okay, it's time for our number of the week round where we take a number, tie it to a new story and have a little bit of chatter about it. Cristal, what have you got for us? Oh, didn't I start this last time? Well, I think it's because you're the regular co-host, you see, so the burden of commencement falls on you. I don't want to put Marco on the spot. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I'll accept that. So my number is 10. And that represents the number of years that a man, a Syrian man called Ahmed H, has been sentenced to. He was found guilty by a Hungarian court of terrorism. The man is Syrian citizen of Cyprus who went back to Syria via Turkey to help move his family out of Syria and to Europe. And so he was caught, he and his fa his parents, his elderly parents were caught um, as just as Hungary put up its borders and those fences um, and was subsequently accused of, of terrorism and has been charged last week. But there's footage of him with a loudspeaker trying to calm um, calm down the police, calm down protesters, because, of course, he was caught in this moment of massive protests and crushing kind of people trying to get through um, those Hungarian borders. So the sentence of 10 years prison um, for multiple accounts of terrorism is reflective, I think, of this populist turn uh, that we might be talking about in broad brush strokes. I'm trying to make a link, Adam. I'm trying really hard to make a link. To I'm our... admiring it from here. <laughs> I can see the, the cogs turning as you speak, Christelle. <laughs> Bottom line, 10 years prison for a man who tried to move his parents into safety in Europe for trumped up charges of terrorism where there is no evidence. Not cool. Not cool, Hungary, not cool. On the subject of populist waves, I'm going to have a number 47, uh, which is the percentage of the vote achieved by uh, the, well, how should we characterize him? Populist is a little bit generous. The far right, uh, neo-Nazi, is that going too far? Uh, the hardline right of center presidential candidate in Austria, uh, who was defeated yes. uh, in the election on Sunday. His name is Norbert Hoffer, uh, the chap who Defeated him is Alexander van der Bellen, who was essentially the candidate of every other political party in the system attempting to stop this from happening. Now, two ways to look at this. On the one hand, 
it is not exactly a, a cause for high fives and trebles all round that 47% is the amount of the vote that Austria, Austria, everybody, is getting for its hard right revivalist figures. On the other hand, in the current political climate, the fact that the uh, hardline uh, crypto-Nazi uh, revivalist is losing it all it probably needs to be seen as some kind of good news. So... I wish that I wish that you were uh, voting as I would wish in a larger proportion, Austria. But let's at least take that v the wins where they come in current desperate times. Marco, what have you got? My number is seventy-one, which is the number of victims in the worst uh, sports tragedy ever in Brazil, where a plane crashed in Colombia carrying a, f uh, a the football club Chapecoense. It uh, was a massive uh, event in Brazil uh, in a time when the Congress was voting. Actually, the Congress voted precisely on that day, apparently, when the population was distracted. The morning, uh, those people who have died voted anti-corruption law, which is everything but anti-corruption, was basically a law that would protect themselves against prosecution from, from judges and the high court, right, to to stop the flow of politicians being arrested. Uh, they voted this law that basically allowed them uh, to, um, to reverse decisions made by judges uh, that uh, intend to prosecute them after they leave office because while they're in office, they have immunity, and they did it strategically in a very sensitive time in the country, which I think was something really... Uh, 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 despicable if you think about what has just happened. Yeah. It, was a, it, was, it was a good day to bury bad news in the, uh, the eternal uh, parlance of British politics. On November 28th, Donald Trump, president-elect of the United States and Olympic standard internet troll, tweeted that not only had he won the electoral college vote for president, but that he also would have won the popular vote, quote, if he deducted the millions of people who voted illegally. He'd offered no evidence for this entirely spurious claim, making it the latest in a long line of baseless statements Trump has made during his political campaign. These have encompassed his opponent Hillary Clinton's policies and alleged corruption, immigration, crime, foreign affairs, and the one that brings us fully through the looking glass, his own past statements. Politicians have long sought to present a slanted version of reality to the public, marshalling misleading statistics and sidestepping inconvenient facts to that end. But the media's never had to deal, at least within the lifetimes of anyone still around today, with a leading politician soon to be president uh, who constantly, it often appears reflexively and sometimes needlessly, tells lies, nor one who, when caught, displays no shame or inclination to accept the correction. This raises the question of what should the media do? Maintain balance by simply reporting his baseless claims alongside and with equivalent weight to those of, who, uh, those of his opponents who contradict him with evidence, to patiently assemble the evidence contrary to his claims while maintaining a studiously neutral tone, or to just start using words like lie directly and explicitly in their reporting, even if that means junking generations of journalistic conventions designed to promote objectivity. With populist forces and post-truth politics, so-called, uh, to use the approved euphemisms, rising elsewhere too, this is of course a matter of concern well beyond America. So, Cristala, mm -hmm. um, there are a variety of interpretations on what the media should do when confronted with a politician who just whacks a flat-out, up-is-down, black-is-white lie on the table. Um, what do you think? Uh, I think a multitude of things about this topic, Adam. And the first is uh, a desire to swipe at the media for this idea that uh, neutrality is a lack of comment and a studious, a studious um, documentation of fact. Because for me, this is not neutrality and this is also not the job of the media. The job of the media for me is also to interrogate multiple perspectives and truths and present those to the public. So for me, the media is also on the other side, has gotten to the point where it's on the other side of the looking glass, where it's set this trap for itself over multiple years and hasn't 
has it, it's never been in this situation where it's needed to um, so robustly refute total mistruths and so has caught itself in this kind of idea that it is neutral and that it is impartial and so on and so forth but but for me the role of a robu- uh, the role of media in a robust democracy is is also to uh, to 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 be more robust and to formulate arguments and to present something that is that interrogates multiple perspectives and i think so the second point in this whole mess that we're in for me is the idea of um, that's connected to media neutrality of publics that are not able or willing to really think about what is portrayed in the media or non-media or alternative media or false media and be able to discern between these things. So I think it's not just I don't lay the blame. So I lay blame at multiple points. I think the media absolutely needs to be more robust and a protector of uh, democracy if you want to put yourself in that camp. But I also think that we need to think about what kind of societies have we grown where we have large proportions of our population unable to discern what is true and what is not true mm. so uh so i think that i'm really i mean for me the media has a real job to do and an obligation to call out these kind of claims as utter falsehoods and mm. and i would also note that it looks like some of those media are doing that i mean the washington post and the new york times for the first time in a long time, I've seen using things like untruths or really clearly taking mm. a position far too late. Yeah. I mean, the New York Times headline on, on the particular example at the start about Donald Trump claiming millions of people voted illegally uh, was to say that Donald Trump claims, comma, without evidence, mm. comma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were a little self-congratulatory about this uh, th- th- this step. But still, it's it's better than... You know the kind of Donald Trump claims headline here, and then you have to get four paragraphs in before you get to the observation that right. there's literally nothing yeah. under uh, underpinning this. Yeah, I mean it. I think it's pretty important with this to get a couple of to get a, a big important distinction in, like when people talk about uh, the media, the mainstream media, uh, or fringe outlets being biased. Like what I have historically interpreted that to mean is that you take facts that have some basis you take the actually existing world and the evidence we have about it and you cherry pick the bits that suit yourself and then you put that you lard that with a world view that has certain priorities and then you put it out there as a kind of mixture of reportage and analysis that if you just take it uncritically leads you to a certain conclusion mm-hmm. and you know if someone says the New York Times has a liberal bias I can kind of see what they're getting at in that regard that you have a bunch of people with a certain set of presuppositions about what the good is and how politics should work and they direct your attention more towards the actually existing facts that would support that at the same time as occasionally but less frequently acknowledging the inconvenient facts. What we're dealing with here is something altogether different from a kind of biased selection of the evidence. It's literally producing facts out of thin air that do not correspond to any reality. Like Donald Trump doesn't have like some uh, complex debatable interpretation of a huge evidence base that's leading him to this conclusion. He just said that millions of people have voted illegally and if you try and track where that comes from down, it comes from this one guy who tweeted it on the basis of apparently literally nothing. Um, And that's a really different kind of problem that we're dealing with much more today than at least we have in the past. I mean, like, I guess we shouldn't lose all historical context. I'm sure in the 18th century, with the technologies that were around at the time, people were repeating all sorts of ludicrous, untrue things without the ability to fact check them. But at least in the modern era, we've tended to feel like these kinds of arguments in politics and about bias tend to come down to debating how it's appropriate to interpret within some spectrum of good faith the evidence that exists rather than just saying stuff is the case that flat out isn't the case or denying in the face of 
unarguable physical reality uh, that things that are clearly true are true. And that's a whole different game, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it's not a question of, of bias. It's, it's much more serious than that. I think we have reached a, a critical uh, moment in history where you know, uh, it doesn't matter anymore if something is, is true or not. If you have a critical mass of people who believe you, and that's what really matters in the end of the day. And this is, is very complicated in terms of how, what shall we do about it. I think you are completely right to say the media has really exposed these falsehoods whenever they, they happen. But uh, the, e the actual effect on people is, is not visible. Right? People mm. just don't want to believe those things. They believe what they want to believe. You, they're, they're yeah. you can see they're actively exhilarated uh -huh. almost by the freedom of cutting loose mm. from inconvenient underlying reality. Yeah, but this is, this is a characteristic of a polarized context, of a heavily polarized society or set of societies, that one side no longer is able to listen to the other at all. I mean, it's, 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 and that also means, to further Marco's point, that the question of how you deal with it, how we deal with that, is much more complicated because people have become so galvanized. You see this almost pre-war or in-war context where there's a total unwillingness to back down from or hear anything other than something that supports your perspective. What is different is this kind of social media age and, and the idea that you're in an echo chair. We're all in our little echo chambers that mm. amplifies this. But I think the, one of the points we need to think about is how do we move people in such a polarized context beyond these um, kind of mutual hysterias. Mm. I mean, I, I agree with you. The one caveat I'd want to put on it is... Is there a danger of failing to acknowledge how asymmetrical yeah, no, the attachment yeah, of truth of is within this polarization? Because polarization left just at that is in danger of risking a false equivalence. Now, I do not for a moment think that right-wing or conservative political positions are intrinsically more vulnerable to cutting loose of truth and, mm -hmm. be, uh, and going off on a crazy paranoid tangent. The history of the world tells us that left-wing movements are just as capable of doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But in our societies right now, in, in, in the United States and in Europe, it seems very clear to me that you know, the, the left of center is guilty often of bias in that first sense I yeah. meant, which is complacently assembling cherry-picked data to argue in favor of reality supposedly supporting a left of center uh, tilt. And the right has a much more numerous number of people who, uh, you know, will just look at black and tell you it's white, or tell you that millions of people voted illegally when they didn't, or tell you that Hillary Clinton is running a uh, child sex ring uh, on the basis of no evidence, and then turn up with a gun uh, at, at the place that's supposedly at the centre of it, as BuzzFeed uh, so well deconstructed for us today. There's there are crazy phantasms and untruths on both sides but the number of people who are putting store in them seems to be vastly greater on the right today than on the left my, my point was absolutely not that it's symmetrical absolutely not i don't claim that at all my point is how do you come back from that mm. yeah I, I think there's a question here that uh, voters they have to go along with someone who says something because they're not going to affect check themselves. So what they call the liberals in the United States, they lost a lot of uh, credibility with, with the voters. And then if they press on, okay, I'm going to fact check this and I'm going to show that he's wrong, it's not going to play out with the, the regular voter because they have aligned themselves already with the other side of the debate. Mm -hmm. So there's the, the question of polarization here. And that's why I think this is very dangerous because the same way that the liberals in the 30s would try to fact check the Nazis, they said, mm -hmm. you're wrong, what they're saying about the Jews is wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, does, it didn't matter. It's not relevant. It's, it's not, relevant not relevant because the project's already in place, yeah. right? Yeah. And you can say whatever you want, you go along with it, regardless. Yeah. Mm. So a liberal's pressing on the fact-checking, fact-checking uh, all the time, it, but it didn't, yeah. politically, it didn't make any difference whatsoever. Yeah. And I'm afraid we're falling into the same kind of trap now. Yeah. We have, I mean, Thank you for articulating what I said <laughs> so inarticulately. That was beautiful, Marco. So, so, yeah, we have a world today where what the New York Times said is regarded as being no more worthy of credibility than what Infowars or www.someswiveleyedguyinabasement.com has to say. Um, and that 
you know, that, that is almost taking you back to philosophical first principles about the nature of knowledge and reality at that point. Because, I mean, these people must know on some level that a random individual with no access to a news gathering organization is unlikely to have access to more accurate facts than some than than a major institution with uh, uh, a whole operation in place but as you say their faith in the the good faith of those institutions has become so uh, eroded that that they uh, that they they refuse to to maintain any kind of distinction and part of it clearly is that they want to believe the conclusions that are coming out. They are primed by this polarization to, you know, if you tell them that the, prob- that the problems that uh, society is facing come from immigration, then they are entirely ready to hear that. If you tell them the problems come from structural wealth inequality best solved by redistribution, they are primed not to want to hear that. So facts, so-called, that support one interpretation over the other will just be alighted upon regardless of source and resisted regardless of source. I think there are two levels that we need to look at this broader problem from. The first is... um, the first is the political infrastructure that uh, of, of racism and entrenched inequality and this kind of scaremongering about uh, migrants and so on and 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 all the rest of it. And I think that requires real um, s- struggle against. Um, but the second level is the public level and people who who. Uh, for for whatever reason are not willing or able to discern what truth is and what truth is not and people who are looking for very easy answers to very complex problems and at that level I think we have a responsibility as educators and as society broader kind of this intellectual elite or whatever you want to call us to, to think about so we've gotten to a point where people are not interested in complex answers to hard problems, and maybe we were, we, maybe we were never interested in complex answers to hard problems, but it seems more marked now. And so, what do we do with that? How do we get to or back to a place where people are able to think in much more complex terms and much more nuanced terms about? how to solve some of these complexities without going refugees are the problem to to all of this Syria Mm. is the problem for all of this you know get rid of the entrenched political elite or whatever I think they're two different levels of battle that we have and and I think like I think people lost faith in 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 politicians in what they say and experts economists they got things wrong so so many times before well, things that were said to trickle down economics would happen didn't happen. Yeah. Actually, happened the opposite. So people are confronted with the reality that science or people told us that uh, the ways to organize society economic that uh, we would all benefit somehow actually didn't materialize. And so that raises this idea that okay, the experts you know, are wrong. I should go with mm. the simple message mm. yeah. and so the strong whiff of vested interests. The idea that the experts have been recruited essentially because they will say the stuff since those already established in power. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that uh, uh, the question here is how can we bring these people back and mm-hmm. say, look, you know, a lot of people are wrong, but that's no reason for you to go along with the simple message, which most of the time is based on untruths or lies, mm-hmm. out, outright lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and this is a really difficult question to answer at the moment because it seems that people are not willing to really listen mm-hmm. to educators or, or, or experts or people who are fact-checking issues. And I think in, in normal times, you'd say that whoever says what Donald Trump said about uh, illegal mm. immigrants voting, when he's confront- confronted with the evidence, he would have to apologize and say, mm. I'm sorry, I was wrong. I didn't have the, the actual facts. But actually, it gives him more mm. uh, energy and become mm. even more vocal in trying to state this very same things over and over again, mm. which is a very and know, is bizarre situation. And even if you try and deny it, the problem is, you know, at the risk of appealing to expertise, you know, there's, there's a pretty solid body of research that says that if that, that efforts to try and deny yeah. falsehoods, 
which require stating those falsehoods prior to disproving them uh, serve a major function in spreading belief in the thing that you're rebutting. Even even as you're rebutting it by putting the false statement out there, that sticks in people's heads more. So if you're an unscrupulous politician saying something not true in order to then get an army of people mm-hmm. telling you it's not true with evidence is a kind of useful tactic because it, it you end up with more people at the end of the day believing the thing than you would have done uh, if you hadn't said it. There's an interesting analogy here when you think about uh, regimes of truth or how belief systems are constructed. When you look at some uh, communities in Africa and you bring to them you know, uh, uh, our Western medicine and science of medicine, and all this, this is what works for a particular type of disease or how to avoid HIV uh, uh, transmission, for instance, have to do this kind of preventive actions. But they prefer to go to, to uh, you know, a, a local uh, a healer who use witchcraft, and they rely on that because they believe that this actual thing works, but actually it doesn't. Mm. But most people believe that it does, right? Mm. And, 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 I, and <laughs> I think, I mean, and that, that, that's the thing. Like, we have to hold on, I think, in this desperate moment to the fact that it doesn't work, right? Like, at the end of the day, modern medicine works more than witchcraft does. But how to uh, convince people? Right, <laughs> well, that, that, that's it. But I think there's, there's a distinction of roles that I think is quite important to hold on to as well. Like, there is one task at hand, which is that of political strategy, which is if you're like a Democratic Party or a Labour Party or a Socialist Party uh, strategist or elected official, how do you go just far enough in the direction of people who believe all this crazy wrong stuff to get them to vote for you in order that you can then try and steer society's ship in the right direction uh, without compromising all of your principles and, and, and feeding the impulses you most, you most despise, which probably does involve a great deal of ref- restraint from saying what's true and telling people they're wrong and making terrible uh, mistakes or misjudgments or repeating lies. And then... There's the task of those of us who do not have the responsibilities of being elected officials or in parties who, you know, I think at this point we are almost at the stage of having to refight the Enlightenment project a second time about what reason and fact and the connection between those things is. So I think the worry the worry I have about those of us on the center left, you know, outside of the party machine, but just in society, in journalism, in academia is that we get too far inside our own heads about the importance of communicating with the broader public, even if that means splitting the difference between what's definitely correct and what's definitely not true. That there comes a point where even at some degree of risk of alienating ourselves from the broader society, we just have to continue to cleave to the facts and the evidence and state and restate them until such time as those who are strategists can find the right way of parceling that and maybe mass marketing it. But when those of us whose job is to call it as we see it and to keep a grip on the reasoned process of argumentation and evidence accumulation, when we start second-guessing that process with a view to working out what the public wants to hear and doesn't, I think that's a perilous moment. I don't think that there's any question, or at least I I don't believe there's any question about... um, people who value truth professionally, right? Um, Trying to dilute uh, essential truths. Um, There's a separation for me between communication and the actual truth itself. So it's... So, I mean, it's one thing to shout out, hey, you racist, whatever. Um, Here are my facts. But as Marco pointed out, in particular contexts, especially pre-conflict just pre-conflict or I don't even think I mean if we to collapse time I don't know that we're pre-conflict we're in the middle of something at the moment that that this kind of global war against terrorism that puts us firmly in uh, an early conflict phase or something that isn't definable right and I'm rambling but what I'm trying to say is that you can hold on to your truths and be um pure in in a sense which is what you're which is what you're talking about adam but no one is going to listen to them and yes people are going to uh, you're going to hold on to those truths until such point as policymakers can come back to them but there is a more immediate problem of how do you get past the deafness that is just as important 
and mm. that's not to dilute the truth. For me, they're two separate things. You don't need to dilute truth. You need to think about what are the techniques for breaking these walls. Mm. And there's a question which is a bit of a provocation as well. Uh, when is the time to have to rethink concepts and ideas that you just take for granted? When you think about if you should allow people to decide on who is running the show mm. when they are not able to do that mm -hmm. in a sensible way <laughs> any longer, mm -hmm. right? What, what shall we do about yeah. that? Mm. Uh, because I think the, it's a question about the Brexit, yeah. the referendum here. So was it a good idea in the first place? Because people are not uh, able to make a decision based on facts, a decision based on emotion, on, on, on kind of a simplistic language that uh, they had to actually agree with or disagree with. But mm. uh, I think this is a fundamental question that uh, you are confronted with yeah. at times. Mm. The very question of democracy. Which takes us back to the very classic <laughs> questions of democracy. Yeah. And, the fact that, you know, and, and also, okay. you know, is that a modern phenomenon? You know, historically speaking, the extent to which the mass public has been deciding elections on the basis of, uh, you know, wide acquaintance with the facts and reasoned uh, discourse based thereon, uh, that, that's real reach. I think it's probably just that the conclusions they were reaching a lot of the time were somewhat closer to what the elite so-called was comfortable with, uh, whereas at this moment, perhaps, uh, perhaps not so much. Anyway, I think we better end it there. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which is very useful to help others discover the pod. You can also uh, recommend us by sharing us on social media, and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, I think word of mouth is one of the ways in which stuff that's awesome gets an audience. So if you like us, tell someone that we you like us. We could get Donald Trump to tweet us. You know. <laughs> I'm not sure we'd want the kind of attention that would earn us, but... If you're listening, Donald, uh, Give maybe, us a tweet. maybe that's the kind of attention you want to get for us. So please, by all means, do. An ocean is some margin of safety, at least. You can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview, where you can see articles uh, and links, etc., related to the show. Our participants today have been Kristala Yakinthu. Where can people find you if they want to, Kristala? On Twitter at at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Marco, do you have a social media presence? Yes, I do. I have a Twitter account, but I don't remember my uh, look account name. If you look up my name on, on Google, you'll find all my social media details quite easily. I'm Adam Quinn. That's uh, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook if you're looking for me. Photo is me face-to-face uh, uh, -face with Lyndon Johnson at the, uh, at the library if you want to uh, spot me. You're better off going to me on Facebook than on Twitter, but if Twitter is your medium of insistence, then at Adam James Quinn is where you can find me there. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us uh, from the last stages of the Enlightenment and also at the Political Science and International Studies Department, its last redoubt, at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.